Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25, the topic. At the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples he won't drink wine until he can drink it with us in his kingdom. The title of our message, Because You're Mine, I Wait for Wine. Let's have a word. Thank you, Second Service. I love you. (laughs) Father, we do thank you so much for your presence in this place. We believe that you are here because in the book of the Revelation, you describe yourself as walking in the midst of the candlesticks, where the candlesticks represent the churches that are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, by your Spirit and in your presence here, we pray that you would teach us from your word. We pray it in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. When the article is titled, America's 14 Strangest Mascots in High School Sports, well, you've got to read that. In the interest of time, I'm going to give you the top five. Number five, Webb High School in Tennessee, the mascot, the feet. Get it? Webb, Webb, feet. That strikes terror into you. Uh, Number four, Antioch High School in Arkansas, the half-breeds. Seems the most politically incorrect title of all time. Number three, Frankfurt High School in Indiana, the... Exactly, yeah, the hot dogs. The Frankfurt hot dogs, which is redundant, I think. Uh, number two, Waters Meat High School in Michigan, the Nimrods. I don't know if that's a, a, a biblical reference or a tip of the hat to Bugs Bunny, uh, who used to call people, what a Nimrod. Uh, and then number one, the Polka High School, West Virginia, Dots. The Polka Dots, get it? Don't shout it out. Just think about it. What would you choose as the mascot for Christians? Well, with reverence, you should choose as the mascot, the lamb. Lamb is the favorite title given to Jesus Christ in the most triumphant book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is called the lamb at least 28 times in that book. When he first appears in heaven in that book, the apostle John says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Not just a lamb, one that appeared to have been sacrificed. Thinking back to his coming to earth, Jesus was born with lambs, and he was first attested to by shepherds out in their fields tending their flocks. When he was introduced to begin his ministry, John the Baptist declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This imagery would mean a great deal more to us if we were first century Jews and if it were Passover season. It was then annually at the temple when tens of thousands of lambs were sacrificed one by one on the altar by the priests. Their meat would then be taken by the offerer to be the main course for a very special celebration, the Passover meal. In our verses, Jesus and his 12 disciples were celebrating their third Passover together. It would also be their last because Jesus was about to go and be crucified. Jesus took advantage of the Passover to to reveal two incredible truths to his disciples. Number one, he revealed he was the lamb being slain for their sins. And number two, he revealed that he was the lamb who would come again to complete their salvation. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God prepared himself the lamb to take away your sin. And number two, God prevailed himself the lamb to come again for your salvation. Let's take a look at God preparing himself the lamb. 
little Bible history would be helpful, or background, I should say. In the Garden of Eden, in the aftermath of Adam and Eve's willful disobedience, God explained that he would himself come into the world of men in order to atone for their sin. He said that he would come as the seed of the woman in order to atone for sin. And to show them what it would entail, God killed animals on their behalf in their place as substitutes And then he clothed Adam and Eve with their skins. Now, Adam and Eve, we don't know how much they knew about this, but we're always looking back and we know a lot more. We know that what God meant was that he would come himself and die and shed his blood and rise from the dead in order to solve the problem of sin. God was showing them that in miniature by slaying animals on their behalf. And he was saying that these animals will substitute for you for a time until I come and finish the sacrifice. It's a good bet the animals God killed were lambs. Now you fast forward to Abraham. In the 22nd chapter of Genesis, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah. At one point, Isaac questions his dad, asking him, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac's no dummy. He's about 30 years old, about the age that, uh, well, he's, he's around 30 years old, we believe. And uh, he's carrying the wood for the sacrifice and the fire. And him and his dad are going up alone. And there's no animal. Uh, And so he's starting to have some maybe thoughts about what could be going on. Uh, Abraham answers, my son, God will provide himself the lamb. Modern translations read, God will provide for himself the lamb. But that takes away a prophetic aspect of what Abraham meant. Abraham prophetically says God will provide himself the lamb. In other words, God would come in human flesh and offer himself as our substitute in our place as the lamb. To finish out the story of Abraham and Isaac, you know that as Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, God stayed his hand through an angel. He was able to offer a ram that was caught in the thicket. And what it's all about, however, is a picture to us that one day God the Father would offer his only begotten son in that same place, Mount Moriah, and he would go through with that sacrifice to save you and I. Fast forward from Abraham to Moses, tasked with delivering the Israelites from Egypt. Through him, God brought a series of 10 plagues to convince Pharaoh to let the Jews go. The final plague was the death of the firstborn throughout the land. A death angel was coming And the only way to be saved was to sacrifice a lamb in each household and then put its blood on the door. The homes that were covered by the blood of the lamb were passed over by this death angel. To commemorate that deliverance, God instituted the feast of Passover. Hundreds of thousands of lambs had been sacrificed from Genesis up until this third Passover Jesus celebrated with his disciples. All of that was about to change forever. And so verse 12, now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? Passover was celebrated on the 14th day of the month, Nisan, that's around March or April on our calendar. It was the first month of the Jewish religious year. The Passover observance was immediately followed by the feast of unleavened bread, That commemorated the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. That took place from the 15th to the 21st of the month. So they'd eat Passover the way that their forefathers had done in Egypt. And then they would eat unleavened bread 
for a week uh, suggesting the exodus from Egypt. The Jews commonly referred to the entire period of time as the Feast of Unleavened Bread rather than insisting that Passover was its own separate feast. And so it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread that began with Passover. In verse 12, it was the 14th of the month, Passover, the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus' disciples asked him where they'd be eating their lamb that year. Normally, this was a family meal or family and friends. Think Thanksgiving. The 12 eating Passover with Jesus indicated a deep, intimate fellowship between them. They weren't sharing it with their own families. They were sharing it with their spiritual family, uh, the disciples in Jesus. And by the way, in the first century, Passover could only be eaten in Jerusalem, and venues to do it for travelers were at a premium. Verse 13, he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. Now we know from the previous verses in this chapter that the religious leaders were seeking to arrest and murder Jesus. Judas has agreed to betray the Lord to them. A Passover dinner while the multitudes were all indoors might be a good place to seize the Lord. So Jesus went full secret agent and kept this thing a mystery. Here's another thought. Judas handled the finances for the ministry. We know this from the Gospel of John. I'd venture that he normally made the Passover arrangements because he would have to pay for them. Not this time. The Lord didn't want Judas to know where the meeting would take place because he had agreed to betray the Lord. The other gospels tell us that it was Peter and John who were sent on this secret mission. It would be an odd thing to see a male servant carrying a pitcher of water without being sexist. In those times, women carried pitchers of water. Men did other work. It was their initial signal. Everything else would fall into place. How many of you have seen an obscure Tom Hanks movie called The Man with One Red Shoe? It, it involves a kind of a, a thing where they say, well, how will I know who the secret agent is? And they go, uh, it's the man with one red shoe, which it wasn't, but it happened to be Tom Hanks. And he's dogged throughout the movie by these agents who are trying to kill him. But something like that, Jesus says, you're going to see a man with a pitcher of water. Mind you, this is Jerusalem. This isn't some backwoods town of 15 people. You know, this is Jerusalem packed with pilgrims for uh, Passover, and it's the day of Passover. So you'll see a guy carrying a pitcher of water. Jesus knew these things supernaturally. He hadn't made any arrangements beforehand, but God the Holy Spirit had gone ahead of him. The master of this house either knew by some revelation that Jesus needed the room, or for some reason he couldn't fathom, no one had approached him to rent out the space. It had probably been on Craigslist for some time. Nobody called. And it would be unusual because people were, you know, lining up to use this place. God is always working behind the scenes to provide for his will to be done. There's a great little devotional study just in this setup right here. If we remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit, like Jesus was, and obedient, like Peter and John were, and we perform our regular work like the servant did, and wait on the Lord like the master of the house did, we're going to be part of a great adventure of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Individually, none of these individuals did anything great or out of the ordinary. But together, it all came together in order to provide for this final Passover at which so many amazing things took place. And so it's an encouragement to you, just do normal Christian things. Wait upon the Lord, listen for the Lord, go about your regular work with the Lord in mind, and watch how he uses your life to change the world. Now, verse 16, so his disciples went out and came into the city. They found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. I don't want to get super technical this morning, but I should mention there is a debate among good Bible scholars as to whether or not this meal really was a Passover meal or just a regular meal on the day before Passover. Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their gospels presented as taking place on Passover on Nisan 14. John, however, insists that Jesus was crucified just at the time the Passover lambs were slain in the temple. That would put it a day before the dinner. So you couldn't have Jesus slain as the Passover lamb and then them celebrate Passover. It would be a a, a day too late. Now, there are several ways of reconciling this. Don't worry. The most credible way is explained by this quote I came across. Listen carefully. Thursday night is the Passover celebration for all of the Galilean Jews. In the Galilee, they celebrated their Passover on Thursday because they marked the Passover day from sunrise to sunrise. The Judean Jews in the south celebrated their Passover on Friday because they marked the Passover day from sunset to sunset. This difference we know from the writings of the Jewish Mishnah. And so Jewish, early Jewish writings tell us that this historically was true. And this shouldn't trouble us. Uh, we have calendar things that we do. I, I think, you know, mostly the, most of the Christian world celebrates Christmas on December 25th, but the Orthodox Church celebrates it on January 6th, I'm pretty sure. And nobody is in a twit over that. Uh, and, and so apparently the Galilean Jews celebrated it on a Thursday, whereas the Judean Jews would celebrate it on a Friday. And I think this is probably necessary on a practical level. And here's what I mean. Josephus, the often quoted Jewish historian who was alive at the time, suggests in his writings that as many as a quarter of a million lambs were sacrificed at Passover. Now, Most scholars feel that's an exaggeration. But the most conservative guess I ran across was 20,000 lambs. So I know it's a big range, but somewhere between 20,000 and over 200,000 lambs had to be sacrificed on Passover. A lot of lambs needed to be slaughtered in a very compressed period of time. And I'm going to go on record as saying that you can't kill that many lambs in just a few hours on one day. And so the practical need for them to celebrate Passover on several different days uh, would also press this forward. And so at any rate, Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples and he is the Passover lamb as other lambs are being slain on Passover. Now in the evening he came with the 12. What was the Passover like? How was it celebrated? Well, many of us have been to the presentation of what is called a Passover Seder. The word Seder simply means order. And so a Passover Seder is the certain order of Passover as you work through the meal. Many of the rituals, however, in the modern Passover Seder were definitely not a part of the first century observance. The Bible actually gives very little instruction about the order of service. 
If you study the Passover in the scripture itself, very little is said about how it is to proceed. Most of what is in a modern Seder is extra-biblical tradition added by both Jews and Christians. For example, after the conclusion of the modern Seder's prayers, it's a custom to pour a cup of wine for Elijah and then open the front door of the home and see if Elijah has come. We know for sure that custom was added much, much later in history, and it was not something Jesus and his disciples would have had any familiarity with. As far as the meal itself, the only elements we can be certain of in the first century are the lamb, the bitter herbs as a dipping sauce, unleavened bread, and wine that was probably diluted uh, to a certain extent. One Jewish historical source described the Passover Jesus would have celebrated this way. After the meal, Jesus says the matzah, the blessing over the bread. He says kiddush, the blessing over the wine. And then they sing hallel, certain psalms. In other words, the entire order of the night is shulchan aruch, the meal itself, matzi, kedush, halel, and then it's over. I'm not trying to take anything away from the importance of that meal. I just think we need to be careful when it comes to the many things that have been added to the Passover. If you've been to a Seder, you get the impression that all of the things that are in that Seder, like this cup to Elijah, are things Jesus would have done. And we just want to be accurate. When it comes to history, let's be as accurate as possible about what actually happened so that people can trust us when we talk to them about the gospel. We don't want to be and we don't need to be making things up uh, in order to prove the gospel. The gospel is powerful enough by itself. And so whenever we're looking at history, any kind of history, let's be accurate. Let's make sure we check our sources so that people can't undercut us. I hate being a downer by telling you all this, but you know what was a real downer? What Jesus told his disciples. Verse 18. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. That's not light dinner conversation. That's awful. Can you even fathom the weight of it? One minute you're enjoying Passover and the next you're told that you're a potential traitor. I I can't even imagine the tone in which Jesus said that. Was it nonchalant? Was it somber? We really don't know. Jesus knew it was Judas, so why trouble the other 11? Why throw that out there and cause them this problem? Well, I think Jesus' comment is a good example of how we need to hear what the Spirit is saying. It was a comment only meant for one, but all of them had to contemplate it. There's always something just for you when the Word is taught. Sunday morning, Wednesday night, uh, you're listening to the radio, even when you're reading for yourself, you should approach the Bible as as there being something just for you that God wants to speak to you. But to get to it, you've got to hear all the rest. You've got to read all the rest. You've got to sift through what's being said. In this case, it was a pretty stinging exhortation. Uh, One time a Bible teacher uh, explained it. He said, you know, there's going to be times when you'll hear something that is an exhortation for somebody else. And in their life, it's like a bomb going off. It's what they need to hear right then to either encourage them or exhort them. You just need to be careful that you don't get hit with shrapnel because that's what happens when bombs go off and then shrapnel and you think, oh, you know, I'm feeling this way or the Lord was speaking to me. No, was he? Is that for you or was something else for you? And so Jesus is encouraging them to engage with his words. One of you is a traitor. Figure it out. And they've been with Jesus long enough to know how to think biblically. 
And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? Sorrowful is not the usual feel of Passover. It was intended to be joyful, commemorating their deliverance from Egypt. This one was different entirely than anything they'd ever celebrated in their lives. Kudos to them for asking, is it I? Even though the true translation is more like, it's not me, is it? At least they were entertaining the possibility that in a moment of weakness, any one of them might betray the Lord. You familiar with the statement, but for the grace of God, there go I. It's exactly what Jesus is giving them as a template. He's saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. And every one of you needs to have the attitude that but for the grace of God, I could have been that person. You know, sometimes we're a little bit judgmental when people are struggling with things that we don't struggle with. James, in his epistle, says we are sin when we are drawn off by our own lusts. And there's some indication in what he says that we uh, don't all struggle the same way. Somebody might have a struggle with pornography. Someone else might have a struggle with substance abuse. And so I'd look at the guy who has the struggle that I don't have and think, well, that's an easy one. I don't struggle with that. You're just a loser. But when it comes to what I'm struggling with, hey, give me some space here because this is real. And what we need to do is say, hey, thank you, God, for the grace that I don't have to struggle with that as well. Let's pray for that individual. Let's see how you want to work in his life. And so this is that moment when the guys can look within and with the help of the Holy Spirit come to a rational conclusion, a supernatural conclusion about where they're at in their relationship with the Lord. Verse 20 He answered and said to them, it's one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. Oh, that only adds to your misery. That's not a clue. It says, it's one of you. Yes, it's one of you. He meant to emphasize the heinous nature of the betrayal. He's saying it's one of them, a person who even at that moment while eating dinner with him, while feigning to love him, is lying in wait to hand him over to death. In his gospel, John lets us know that he asked Jesus directly and that he found out it was Judas, but the other disciples didn't know that. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. Stop there for a moment. The entire Old Testament pointed to the coming of the Son of Man who would be God's final lamb. God promised it and he provided himself for it. And so we looked a little bit, you know, Genesis This is a statement that God who said he would come and die for the sins of the world, that's what's happening right now. This is the fulfillment of that. But simultaneously, Judas could have repented. Verse 21 goes on to say, woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. This is a woe of sorrow indicating that man might have chosen otherwise. As I explained at some length last week, God's providence did not necessitate predetermining Judas's fate as a betrayer who would be damned to hell. Judas was not predestined for hell. God doesn't do that. He's big enough to provide for his plan without that kind of cosmic cruelty. Never been born isn't the kind of thing you'd say if someone was predetermined from eternity past to do a terrible deed. You'd say, well, he needed to be born. But as I said, God provides for his plan without entrapment. Jesus is about to be betrayed. He would be killed. It would unfold just the way the prophet Isaiah said when he wrote, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. At that moment, 
in that upper room, Jesus was fulfilling God's promise to provide himself, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, led as a lamb to the slaughter. Everything was coming together. Did the 12 realize all this? Probably not. They would later. But at least everything they needed to put it together was right there in that room. And they could look back and say, Jesus was letting us know, no more Passover lamb. I'm the lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. And this is the moment that you've all been waiting for. Now, number two, the remaining verses, God prevailed himself, the lamb, to come again for your salvation. The Passover meal was over, but Jesus was just getting started. He did something wonderful with some bread and a cup of wine, something that we still do today. Verse 22, and they were eating. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Question, did Judas partake of this bread and this wine? Most competent Bible scholars will say no, Judas certainly did not partake of this part of their supper. The Passover meal must have therefore been over when Jesus spoke to the 11 about the bread and the wine. Jesus didn't change Passover. He fulfilled it and then he established something brand new. Passover isn't now a a Christian Passover. Jesus didn't Christianize the Passover. Passover was done, finished, over, no more. And then Jesus said, here's what we're going to do in the church age. We're going to commemorate and remember me with bread and with wine. The writer to the Hebrew Christians described this change this way. He said, this is Hebrews 10, 5. Therefore, when Jesus came into the world, God became flesh. He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. The sacrifice and offering of the lambs through the centuries were a temporary measure until Jesus came. God did not desire that. He wasn't pleased with that. It didn't accomplish anything except point to the need for his death on the cross to save us from our sins. He was God in human flesh. That's the body prepared. In that incarnation body, he became God's final lamb. And so throughout the centuries... Christians have debated the exact meaning of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The 11 guys sitting around the table would have understood Jesus was using figurative language. The bread represented his body. The wine represented his blood. Nothing more but nothing less. It doesn't take anything away from the elements, but it doesn't add anything weird and metaphysical and mystical to them. Instead of getting lost in these kinds of arguments, I like the simplicity of what William McDonald said. He wrote, Jesus took humanity upon himself. He broke. He was about to be broken on the cross. He gave. He gave himself for us. This is what the disciples were meant to understand. We we can't get so caught up in discovering what the bread and the cup mean that we forget to do what Jesus said to do with them, take them and eat them. Now, how are we supposed to take and eat? Well, obviously, the exhortation is first and foremost spiritual. 
We are to appropriate Jesus' death on the cross by believing he is our Savior. That night, in that upper room, Jesus was saying, we're done with the Passover, no more lambs, no more goats, no more bulls, no more doves, no more animals, period, in terms of atoning for and covering sin. That's all done with. Now I am going to be sacrificed once and for all. I'm going to rise from the dead and I am going to call all men to myself. And if you will believe that, then you will be saved and you can commemorate and remember what I've done and proclaim that you believe it by sharing bread and wine together in a special remembrance of me. Now, how do we practically do this? Here's what the Apostle Paul told the church at Corinth, and this is the biggest area of Scripture where we get instruction on how to receive the bread and the wine. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, I receive from the Lord, so Jesus told him this personally, uh, the same night he took, uh, in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now in Corinth, at least, the church gathered weekly on Sunday night for a potluck. After eating, they would take bread and wine together. Simple, but powerful. Now, we have a lot of freedom regarding the bread and the wine. Paul said, for one thing, as often as you eat and drink. That means there's no instruction on how often it's up to us. Paul says, as often as you do this. Well, how often did the church at Corinth do it? Apparently, they did it every week on Sunday night. There's some argument in the book of Acts that the early believers did it every day that they gathered. Paul says, as often as you do it. The the amount of time, that's up to you. There's no instruction on how to serve the elements, so that's up to us. There's no instruction on whether or not children may partake, so that's up to us. There's no instruction on where to serve the elements, such as only in a church service or in your own home, so it's up to us. As a footnote, I would add to that, there are churches, uh, I remember one time we wanted to, uh, we were having a dinner, and we wanted to have communion afterwards before we had a building, we were using another church's facility, we asked if we could borrow their communion trays, and they said no, because only certain people in their church could touch those trays. I don't want to comment on that. (laughs) Back into our study, there's no instruction on the type of bread or the potency of the wine. So it's up to us. Can we really have this much freedom? Yes, we can, as long as we deal with it reverently. We've chosen for now to share the elements as we gather on the last Wednesday night of every month. We like to have you come forward and get the elements for yourself to receive them for yourself and then partake as you're in prayer with the Lord or with others. We also have the elements upstairs in the prayer room on Sunday mornings for folks who want to go and pray and share uh, in that way. We encourage you to share bread in the cup at home as often as you'd like. We can get lost in the details such as demanding that the bread be unleavened or that we use wine and not grape juice. And I guess what I'm trying to establish here is this. How much like the New Testament can we really be? And so when you start to say, for example, you say, well, we should really drink wine and not grape juice. All right, well, then we should really drink wine out of one goblet. 
all sharing together because that's what they did. And we should really do it around a U-shaped table leaning on cushions because that's what they did. So if you're going to say that's what they did, then let's do all that they did. But we have a lot of freedom. I, for one, am not going to drink in a cup that you just drank out of. I don't care how much faith I have. That's just stupid. And as far as whether or not it needs to be wine, they would have drank a diluted wine. It's, it's, if you study the history of this, the Jews diluted their wine so that no one would get drunk. They knew how to get drunk. There were times they did. But they diluted their wine so that people would not get drunk. I'd rather drink grape juice than diluted Merlot. Here's something else I'll throw out that'll just blow your mind. I'm not saying this is true, but I have a book. It's kind of a hobby of mine. I don't drink, but I like to study drinking. And uh, I have a book by guys, they're winemakers that are not Christians. It's the history of wine through the Bible times. And they suggest that the most popular wine in Jesus' time, the wine he drank most often, I'm not saying he did it at this meal, the wine he drank most often would have been a white wine. And you're you cannot have white wine at communion. Well, Jesus may have had white wine at the Last Supper. Uh, so we just don't know. So you can only be, I mean, you can get so into the elements themselves that you miss the real point of it, and that is having fellowship with the Lord, looking back at what he's done, looking within at what he's doing, and looking forward to his coming. In verse 24... Jesus mentioned a new covenant. It implies an old covenant. That old covenant was the law of Moses. Passover is a good example of the old covenant. You sacrificed a lamb in your place and God could receive you into his presence. But your sins were only temporarily covered and you needed to keep on sacrificing lamb after lamb. Under the new covenant, God sacrificed himself, the lamb, for you. And when you believe, he receives you into his presence, justified, having forgiven your sins. In the new covenant, he also gives you his Holy Spirit to indwell you, to live in you. Jesus said his blood was shed for many. That doesn't mean it was uh, restricted to just a certain group. It's a comparison. What one man did by dying affects the entire larger group, the many. It's a comparison. There is one and many, one and everybody else in the human race. Jesus is the Savior of all mankind, especially those who believe. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This statement is Jesus' promise. He prevails as the Lamb of God. About to be betrayed and murdered, he spoke of his ultimate victory over Satan, sin, hell, and death as it was something that had already been accomplished. He was specifically envisioning his future return to the earth to establish the promised kingdom of God. You see this in the revelation. In fact, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He steps forward as the lamb who was slain. He takes a seven-sealed scroll. He opens the seals one after another. And by the time the final seal is opened, he is returning to the earth in triumph to establish his 1,000-year kingdom. And when he does come back, there's a great feast upon the earth. And Jesus said, I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you in that future feast. It's a token of his love for us. It's romantic, for lack of a better word. Is there something you really, really want to do as a couple? Let's say the opportunity came for one of you to do it. Would you take the opportunity? Now, your your spouse might say, go ahead. Go ahead and do it. At least one of us could do it. But here's my recommendation as a marriage counselor. Ignore that. 
And you should ignore it anyway. I'll tell you why. Because it's not the doing of it. It's the doing of it together. It's the fact that you want to be together. You want to experience it together. You want to be together. It's romantic. Who cares what the thing is? Jesus is saying to us, I can't wait until we're together on the millennial earth feasting and fellowshipping. And so I'm not even going to drink wine again until we can do it together. That's how serious I am about this thing. He loves you and he can't wait. And he wants to give you a token of that love. Meantime, Paul says, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We should therefore emphasize his coming whenever we share the elements, remembering his excitement to see us in person at the table and having our own excitement to see him. If the disciples were paying attention, they could have gone from despair from the end of the Passover to delight in the sharing of these elements. They despaired at the announcement of Jesus' betrayal by one of them at the table. They could delight in the pronouncement of the future feast involving 11 of them and multitudes of others. At one moment, they're saying, is it I? It's not me, is it? But the next minute, they could say, hey, 11 of us are headed for a wonderful feast. And now I know it's me because I've searched my heart and I really do love the Lord. Are you desperate today? Has some illness or injury or injustice assailed you? God provided himself the lamb and he prevails himself the lamb. He's coming. He has begun a good work in you and he will perform it unto the day you are with him. You are saved. You're being saved. You're being sanctified, changed from moment to moment. And one day your salvation will be complete when you're in a new glorified body with the Lord. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a seat reserved at the table. There's a glass of wine waiting for you to drink with Jesus Christ when he raises his glass and you toast together forever love. Amen.